classic Christmas characters. One of those people that, like, every time this year, they, they play that essential and central role to the Christmas story. One of those characters that you just cannot have the Christmas story without this person. The classic Christmas character of Bathsheba. surprising character that you don't normally associate with the Christmas story, that this person of Bathsheba. And, and how does Bathsheba have anything to do with Christmas at all? We're, we're going to talk about that. We're going to make the links this morning and, and discover that, connect the dots of that today. Um, Justin explained so beautifully the whole season of Advent. That was an amazing job, just explaining what this season is about and that anticipation and the waiting that goes into this season as we wait for the arrival of Christ at Christmas and, and celebrate the birth of the Messiah. So what we try to do is walk through that history um, with the people who waited for him the first time. And so we followed all the way through history about these people that were a part of Jesus' line. And we've been using the genealogy of Matthew as our framework for this series and exploring the characters in the genealogy. This piece of, of scripture that we normally think of as this kind of flyover country, right? As this boring begats kind of deal. And you're like, don't bore me with that. And, and we talked last week, there's got to be a better way to start a story than that, right? No, actually. Matthew was absolutely on to something. He knew exactly what he was doing by lining out that genealogy of Jesus and connecting the dots for us about where Jesus has come from. And there's so much lying there. As we said last week, there's no such thing as just a name on a list. There's always an, an important story that goes with it. So we've been following that. We begin, the genealogy begins with Abraham and Isaac, right? And, and, and the mother of Isaac, Sarah. So we began with Sarah. Last week we talked about Ruth. And this week we're talking about Bathsheba. So it's interesting that Matthew would include any women at all in the genealogy of Jesus. It's very interesting because this was such a male-centered culture. And, and when you're talking about the lineage of a person, the men, uh, as, as much as it just kind of hurts us even to say it now, um, the men were the only people that mattered in the genealogy. So the idea that Matthew would include women is shocking. So there's something to that. First of all, it tells us just the role that every person plays in the story of God and the way God sees us in different ways and the rest of the culture around us might see us. Um, so the fact that he would include women at all is shocking. But especially the particular women that he does include is really shocking when you look at it. For instance, uh, in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1 there in the genealogy, verse 3 and, verses, and verse 5 um, refer to a couple of very interesting people. All right, Verse 3 says this, that Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, Anybody know this story? This is a crazy story. Okay, Tamar was actually uh, you know, the mother of Judah's children. But Tamar was not Judah's wife. 
Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Anybody else totally creeped out right now? Okay, if not, just hang on. It gets worse. Okay, so the, the way that this happens is that Tamar actually tricks Judah into thinking that she's a prostitute. And Judah sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant with Judah's uh, children, the twin boys. And one of those boys ends up being in the lineage of Jesus. How crazy is that? So, including women, crazy enough, including that woman in particular, a little bit shady, right? It's like, I probably would have glossed over that part. Um, and you move into verse 5, and you've got another woman that's mentioned there. Um, Salmon, the father, it, it's salmon when you're talking about fish. It's salmon when you're reading scripture, okay? So, <laughs> Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Anybody know who Rahab was? I remember this story. Okay, Rahab was in the Old Testament, and in the story when, when Joshua was going to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and, and kind of conquer that land, Rahab was living there, and, and she herself, again, was a prostitute. She was a prostitute. She was spared when Joshua and the people came in and took over the land, and she became a part uh, of, the, of the Israelite culture and falls in line of the genealogy of Jesus. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. So here we have this, this story that begins, it, it kind of bookends uh, Sarah, right? Begins with Sarah, and, and, and it ends with Mary, as far as the genealogy of Jesus and the women that are there, that are listed. Um, and, and these two heroes of the faith that we lift up. And yet in between, we have these two prostitutes that show up in it. Shocking. Shocking. It's almost as if God wants us to know that grace has no bounds or something, right? A crazy thought as it is. But so you look at the life of Jesus and the, the lineage of Jesus. And this person that Matthew is presenting as the divine son of God himself. And yet in it he includes two prostitutes. Crazy. Crazy. So the line of Jesus, here we have Sarah, Mary, Tamar, Rahab. The line of Jesus is cluttered with women who sell their bodies to men as well as who surrender their bodies to God. What a mixed up and messed up story this is. And this, it sounds like this detracts from kind of the purity of Jesus and who he was. Not at all. This heightens the story for us. And it lets us know that Jesus is everything that we hoped he would be. He is everything that he hoped he would be. That God is such a redemptive God. That he takes even these broken and messed up people. And he weaves them into his story. And they become a part of his plan. And these people with these messed up pasts. And God uses their futures to accomplish his plan and incredible things. What a beautiful God this is. What an amazing story he's writing. Also, in the middle of this, and, and by the way, maybe that's why Jesus felt so comfortable, uh, and, and we see him so many times showing compassion and hanging around with prostitutes in the New Testament. These were his people. These are his people. That sounds like a scandalous thing to say, but it's not. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that he is at home with the most broken of people. And Jesus comes from a long line of screwed up people. Beautiful thought. 
Okay, so as we continue this lineage and we go down and we get to verse 6, it talks about someone else as well. It talks about David and his son Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. Whose mother was Bathsheba. So we have Bathsheba included in the lineage too, intentionally written into the story here. And we know many of you are familiar with this story. It's found in the book of 2 Samuel, and it starts in chapter 11. And it begins with this in verse 1. It says, At springtime, when kings would go off to war, David was at home. King David was at home. Is it because Israel was, was in the middle of peacetime and there was no war going on? No. The Israelite armies were out in the field, and yet David was at home. This warrior king that over and over we see him like on the front lines of battle. But something has shifted now in David's heart. Something has changed. And instead of being on the front line with his people, he is at home while they fight his wars for him. Something is changing in David's heart. It goes on to say that one night David was walking around on his roof, probably enjoying like the, the coolness of the evening air walking around on the roof and he's looking out over his kingdom and he sees a woman bathing. And he said, it says that she's beautiful and that David desires her. And so he sends someone to go find out who this woman is. And the answer comes back with this. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. Again, every name is important. No name is just a name on the list. Who are these people? Uriah, uh, the, the husband, and Eliam, the father of Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, we find another list of people. It lists out David's mighty men and then this other elite group of warriors that were incredibly close to David, that had pledged their lives to protect David and to fight for him. This was more than just an elite military unit. This was also like a brotherhood of people that had pledged their blood for David. And David felt this affection back for them as well. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is included on that list. Eliam, Bathsheba's father, included on that list. We also find out that Eliam, Bathsheba's father, his father was one of David's counselors and a voice of wisdom within David's court. And, and so Bathsheba, the granddaughter of his counselor, the daughter of his friend and this warrior who would fight for him, and the wife of one of his close friends and, and this warrior who would fight for him. And David still sends a messenger to get her. They bring Bathsheba back to him. They sleep together. And so we've moved, this progression is moving so fast, it goes from lust to betrayal, where he turns his back on his friends and moves into adultery. After this happens, Bathsheba goes back to her house and soon later sends David a message with three words. I am pregnant. I am pregnant. And so David realizes he has to do something about this. Her husband Uriah has been away at war for a long time, and everyone will know that this is not Uriah's son, that this is not Uriah's child. And so David begins to come up with a plan, and so we move into deceit now as well. And David calls for Uriah to be brought back from the battlefield. 
as he's brought back, David pretends to want to know from him how the battle is going, but really he has a different plan. And so he says, Uriah, I appreciate what you're doing. As a reward, I want you to go home and, and, and enjoy an evening at home with your wife. Perfect way to, to clean, clean things up for David. But Uriah is a man of character. And it says that Uriah goes, and instead of going to his house, he goes to the palace gate at the entrance of, of David's palace, and he sleeps there outside at the palace gate with David's other servants. David finds out about this and realizes his plan isn't working. And he says, Uriah, why didn't you go home last night? You had the opportunity to be with your wife after being out in the field and being gone for so long and, and just being in the middle of all these men for so long. And you had the opportunity to be with your wife last night. Why didn't you do that? And Uriah says, David, the ark of God is out in a tent somewhere in the field. And my brothers that I fight beside are sleeping out in an open field. And you want me to go home and sleep with my wife? I would never do such a thing, he says. Uriah displays what kind of man of character he is. David realizes his plan isn't going to work, so he decides to throw a feast for Uriah. And he feeds him, and he gets him just slam drunk. Okay? Just gets him completely wasted and hopes that there has been a little bit of integrity impairment that has taken place here. Sends Uriah back home. Uriah goes, and instead of going to his house again, even in that condition, he sleeps at the palace gate, refuses to go home. David understands this is not going to work. And so he takes the plan to the next level. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield. This time he places a message in his hand for him to take to the head of the army. And as Uriah is heading back to the battlefield, he carries in his hand a message from David himself that without even realizing it, is his death sentence. In the message, David says to the leader of the army, here's what I need you to do. Place Uriah at the fiercest part of the battle. Put him on the front lines where the battle is the hottest. And at just the right moment, I want you to pull back the men so Uriah is left exposed and so that he will be struck down. The leader of the army goes through with the plan. So David, sitting on his throne, soon gets a message back from the field. And, and the courier comes back and says, there's bad news from the battlefield. The, 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 the battle took a terrible turn. Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. David answers back. Don't be discouraged about these things. War is ugly like that. Sometimes the enemy falls by the sword. Sometimes we fall by the sword. Don't be discouraged. And David's plan completely works. Now he gets to look like the hero. And so he takes Bathsheba, this widow, into his own house to show what kind of honor Uriah had in his eyes. And he takes Uriah's wife to be one of his royal wives as a sign of honor to Uriah. David is to be the hero in the picture. But not for very long. Because the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, David, something has gone terribly wrong. I need you to listen to a story. And he says, tell me. Nathan says, there's a man in our country who had nothing to his name except one little sheep. 
He loved this sheep. And he would take care of it. And he like raised it with his family. And it was like a part of his family. He would feed it from his own table. He loved this sheep. It was the only thing he had. But he had a neighbor who was very rich and had just all kinds of sheep and livestock. And this neighbor had a visitor who came. And so he wanted to make him a feast. But instead of giving him one of his many, he went across to the man who had only that little tiny sheep. And he stole that sheep from him. And he slaughtered that sheep. And he served it to the trap. David was outraged. David, who had this history of being a shepherd himself, was absolutely outraged. He flipped over this. And he said, show me who this man is and I will make him pay. And Nathan answers back, you are that man. Immediately David realizes what he's talking about. And it all comes crushing down on him. And to his credit, even though there's been this history here of lust, of deceit, of betrayal, of murder, David is crushed and he repents and his heart turns back to God. He says, I've sinned against God. And God forgives him. The crazy thing about this is that later on, David and Bathsheba have a son together named Solomon. And Solomon becomes one of the greatest kings in the history of the world. Still, his name is synonymous with great riches and great wisdom. And out of Solomon's line comes down the road Jesus so out of all of this messed up background story of this betrayal, deceit, adultery, murder even, Jesus still, or God still pieces together the story, still salvages the story, and on down the line, these people with this messed up and broken past actually become a part of an incredibly bright future for all of us. And Jesus is born out of that. So, so what does this have to do for Christmas Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Now, I'm not saying that you, you like make the story of Bathsheba the, the centerpiece of your next Christmas card. Okay? Don't do that. Lust, betrayal, murder. <laughs> the reason for the season. Right? Okay. <laughs> not. All right. But, but, here's the thing. This has everything to do with the Christmas story. Because out of the line of very broken people, Jesus is born to heal a broken world. Jesus comes through the line of broken people so that he can heal broken people. Jesus comes from a long line of screw-ups, like you and me, so that he can heal the world from the inside. This is crucial to the Christmas story because it tells us everything that the Christmas story is about. And this story shouts back at us as does Matthew's genealogy, and as does the whole lineage, that forgiveness is possible, that redemption is real, and that no matter how screwed up your past, grace always gets the last word. Grace always gets the last word. Sin is strong, but grace is stronger. Sin never gets the last word. Because of a little baby born in Bethlehem, grace gets the last word. What an interesting thought. Before he even had learned to speak his first word, he was already destined to have the last word. That's the way this story works. 
Jesus is born into the middle of this mixed up mess to heal it from the inside. Jesus is, is like the artist who, who salvages the, this unexpected material and bring, breathes new beauty into it. And so he takes broken hearts and broken people and broken promises and he carefully, carefully puts together a stunning mosaic of grace that shouts at us, forgiveness is possible and redemption is real. That is the Christmas story. The world will want to tell you that you are a screw-up. The bad news is it's true. Merry Christmas. The bad news is it's true. The good news is there's something that's more true than that. There is a deeper truth than that. And it is the idea that Jesus takes screwed up people and he uses them for his glory. He heals broken messes and he pulls it all together. And the story of Bathsheba tells us that there is a peace. There is a peace in knowing that what you have done in your past is not nearly as important as what God wants to do with your future. This story is not over yet. He has not given up on you. He has not given up on you. Forgiveness is real. Redemption is possible. There's a song right now that, that, that's out that says this beautiful words to the chorus. It says, you are more than the choices that you've made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the problems you create. You've been remade. You've been remade. And the birth of that little baby boy in Bethlehem makes that possible. Who comes from this long line of of train wrecks and traitors. Of rebels and runaways. Of the least and the last and the lost like you and me. He is born into this world to save it from the inside and to reverse the story, to turn it on its head. And that is what Christmas is about. That is at the heart of the whole thing. It's beautiful that he uses such unexpected people, such messed up people, because it tells us, yes, this is the God who is everything we hoped he would be. He is overflowing with redemption, and everything he gets his hands on gets a new start. Gets a new start. That's what this is about. That's what the whole story is all about. So here's the deal. We've been talking about the candles. Justin walked us through what these candles mean. And so we lit the first candle a couple of weeks ago. It was the hope candle. And we talked about the story of Sarah. And the story of Sarah says to us that hope is always worth the wait. And that sometimes the most courageous act of the wildest faith is to wait. And last week we lit the joy candle. And we talked about the story of Ruth and then the story along with that of Naomi and Boaz. And the idea that these people who had moved from their lives being beautiful into their lives being bitter. And they thought that the whole thing was over. They found out the beautiful truth that they were spoken for. And that their story wasn't over yet. There's great joy in discovering that. And 
today we talked about the peace candle. And the story of Bathsheba and the story of David tells us that peace is knowing that what we have done in our past is not nearly as important as what God wants to do with our future. And it all comes together in this baby boy born in Bethlehem, not even speaking his first word yet, but already claiming the last word. And the last word is this. Forgiveness is possible. Redemption is real. Redemption is real. The way he accomplishes that is this. When we celebrate Christmas, we talk about the beginning of Jesus' life, but that always points down to the end of Jesus' life. And this baby boy grows up to be a man with a mission to bring us salvation. And so, in the last night, when Jesus was with his friends, his disciples, he took bread and he told them, this bread is like my body, broken for you. I am broken so that you can be healed. Anytime you eat it, remember what I've done for you. And then he takes the wine and the cup and he says, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. My blood spilled out for you. This is what makes redemption possible. Anytime you drink it, remember what I've done for you and celebrate it. So this morning, as we are celebrating the arrival and the beginning of Jesus' life, we also look to the end of it for the reason why he came. And it was this, so that we could know hope, so that we could know joy, so that we could know peace in the deepest places. He made that possible by his sacrifice of his body, by the spilling of his blood. Forgiveness is possible. Redemption is real. Your story isn't over. Your story isn't over. What we're going to do is invite you in just a minute to come down and to tear off a piece of bread. Seth and Lauren are going to be down here. Seth will be holding the bread and Lauren will be holding the cup. Tear off a piece of the bread. Tear off a big piece now. All right. You know our, our, our liturgy on this, right? You remember this. Tear off a big piece because grace, you need a, a piece of grace thick enough to choke on, right? We love to say that. To tear off a big old honking piece, okay? And then dip it, dip it in the cup and experience those two tastes mingled together and just taste how good grace is, all right? As it crosses your lips, realize this is a robust thing. This is a full thing that Christ has accomplished for you and is giving for you. Okay? In just a moment, we're going to have you come down. Come this way, come across the front, and then you can return to your seat that way. Lord, thank you for your gift of your body and your blood. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the possibility of hope, for the possibility of joy, for the possibility of peace, and knowing that what we've done in our past is not nearly as important as what you want to do with our future. We love you. Help us to experience this today. In your name we pray. Amen. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good.